The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we are prepared so that under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit and His teaching ministry, we can come to understand these important doctrines from the Old Testament, see how they relate to one another, to our own lives, so that we can push on towards spiritual maturity. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who fills us and who teaches us, and he is the one who helps us to understand and put together all of these important doctrines to see how they relate to our lives. It is under his ministry that we advance and grow and produce fruit in the spiritual life, and it is under his ministry that we are enabled to glorify you. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to focus this morning, to concentrate, to get beyond whatever distractions there might be in our lives outside of of right now, while we're here in Bible class, that we might focus on your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our orientation to the Old Testament, and this morning we are going to look at the collapse of the theocracy and the rise of the monarchy in the nation Israel. Collapse of the theocracy and the rise of the monarchy. Now, we have seen in our Old Testament uh, analysis so far that the Old Testament is made up of basically, in the English Bible, you've got about five groups. You've got the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of Moses, which gives the origination of the nation Israel and their constitution. It also describes the events of the Exodus. There's the calling out, excuse me, first the calling out of Abraham, then the enslavement after jo- the time of Joseph for approximately 400 years in Egypt. And then the calling out from Egypt, the, what is comparable to redemption, when they come out through uh, the Exodus events. And then the disobedience at Kadesh Barnea. Then that's followed by 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, a time of discipline when the entire Exodus generation, with the exception of, jo- of uh, Caleb and Joshua, or uh, die under divine discipline. Essentially, it's the sin unto death. They're not allowed to go into the land, and then they are on the verge of going into the land. We have seen that in terms of the formation of the nation, in terms of the formation of the nation, there are three requisite elements. People, constitution, and land. We saw, first of all, the acquisition of the people and the supernatural character of that at the Exodus event when they are redeemed by blood. That is the whole picture. Everything related to the Passover, the sacrifice of the lamb, the putting the blood, applying the blood to the doorpost of the house pictures is a picture for us of our salvation in Jesus Christ who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then we saw the second element, which is the Constitution, which is the the law, the Mosaic Code, must be understood as a constitution for the nation Israel. It has no specific, I want to make that clear, it has no specific application to
to anyone else other than Israel from approximately 1445 B.C. Remember, they left in 1446. That's the date of the Exodus. They spend a year at Sinai. So from 1445 B.C. until approximately 33 A.D. when Jesus Christ goes to the cross, Israel is under the Mosaic Code, period. That's it. It's only for Israel. It's only for that period of time. It is an uh, it is a temporary covenant and a conditional covenant. The covenant, the constitution, as it were, of the nation Israel sets up a theocracy. Now, the word theocracy comes from, it's a compound word from the Greek word theos, meaning God, and krasis, meaning rule. So, in a theocracy, the ultimate authority is God. God is the ruler of the nation. In a democracy, demos meaning literally the crowds and the masses, or the mob, it's mob rule, uh, basically what democracy means. Uh, then you have other various words, oligarchy, monarchy, describing different forms of, of rule. But Israel is set up under a theocracy where God is the king, and the symbol of his rule are the Ark of the Covenant, which is where he is enthroned between the cherubs on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, and then the priesthood basically functions as the, as the bureaucracy of the nation, and it is through the priesthood that God communicates his will to the people, and they in turn act as mediators for the people as they come before God. In the Mosaic Law, we have the establishment of the sacrificial system. We have the, all of the various sacrifices, the feast days. All of these are set up to teach certain principles to the people about what it takes to come before God, and all the laws related to uncleanness emphasize the fact that we are all sinners and just about anything and everything we can do in life is going to separate us from God because it's tainted by sin. So in the Levitical offerings, you see this emphasis on the, the, the devastating consequences of sin that affects every area of our life, and yet the grace of God who always provides a solution so that man can deal with his sin and come before God. That deals with the first two elements of the nation, the people and the constitution. And then last time, we started to look at the third element that is necessary for having a nation, and that is the land and that God outlined a specific foreign policy for Israel. And that included, that had two aspects to it. We said that there were rules related to the cities that were outside the land proper, and then cities inside the land. The cities that were outside the land, they proclaimed peace to them, and if they responded to uh, Israel's offer of peace, then they became enslaved and, and subjugated to Israel. The cities in the land were to be annihilated. God was going to completely remove the Canaanites from the face of the earth. Now, we've gotten a couple of these slides out of order, so we're going to jump through them forward. Genesis 15:16. God said to Abraham, even then, God knew in his plan that the Canaanites would not uh, recover from their carnality, from their reversionism, from the perversion of all of their religious system. But he, as always, God in grace gives us time to work out the consequences of our negative volition. And in Genesis 15:16, God told Abram, Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, prophesying regarding the nation after their captivity in, in Egypt. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorite. And the, he just uses the term Amorite there as a representative of one of the peoples. You have the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Girgashites all sorts of different ethnic groups in the land, but they represent one culture. So here the Amorites represents all of them. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God was going to give that culture enough time to, as it were, completely hang themselves and indict themselves as guilty in the court of God's justice. So that set us up last time for the Entrance into the land. Entrance into the land and there are, when you look at the book of Joshua, I want to back up and look at some things we couldn't see last time. When we look at the, uh, the book of Joshua, basically laid out in two parts. The first half of the, of the, um, the first half of the book up through Joshua 11 talks about the campaign to take the land and to conquer the land. The second half of Joshua talks about how they, they, they take control of the land. They hit the big cities, the big areas in the first 11 chapters, 
and then they uh, divide up the land into various tribal allotments, which areas went to which tribes, and then each of those tribes moved in sort of a mopping up operation to gain control of that area. So I have managed to get these uh, slides out of order, so I'm going to do a little real quick little fix here so that we can uh, get things where they belong. Okay, one, two, and three. Do it. This is a map of the nation. Now, this map, we're looking at it sideways. North is really up to your upper right angle. I mean, if you want to know which way north is, north goes this way. So this is down towards the south. Here's the Dead Sea. Here's the Sea of Galilee. And then we have the Jordan River flowing from one to the other. It's interesting, Jim emailed me an article the other day. This is kind of a side note. Jim emailed me an article last week that some archaeologists had claimed to discover under the northern end of the Dead Sea up here the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he asked, well, is this true? And I talked with Randy Price the other day, and Randy said, no, it's not. There's been an extended debate with this guy. Number one, the cities of the plains were down here. The cities of the valley, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the, the five cities were in this area. The Dead Sea is, at, is several hundred feet lower now than it was even at the time of Christ. So, if there's, number one, there's no indication that the cities remained underwater or stayed underwater. Secondly, the dead, there, there used to be a tremendous amount of water flowing in the Jordan. And that's important because when the nation goes in, they send in a couple of spies initially. Joshua sends in a recon team to check out uh, Jericho. And when that recon team comes back, they say they are, they've already heard about us. They know we're here. They, we have a reputation. They've heard about our, our, uh, the events that, uh, coming out of Egypt, and they're prepared. So if we want to have a uh, uh, victory, we need to go now. Well, the problem was that the, it was early spring. The Jordan's not only normally high at that time. It's not like that now. But at that time, it was high, and it was at flood. So God is going to demonstrate that he is the general of the armies and the general of the army of Israel and that the battle is the Lord's, the battle is his, and he is the one who is going to lead Israel to victory. The victory is going to be exclusively on his power and not their power. So no matter what the problems might be, and this takes us right back to problem solving, no matter what the problems might be that they encounter, God is going to demonstrate that he is sufficient to overcome any and every problem and difficulty that they face in taking the land, but they must obey him exclusively. If they don't, there will be problems, and that's exactly what happens at Ai. So the nation comes along, and comes up out of the wilderness here. They come to Second Kadesh, which is located right about here on the screen, and then they head north, and they make their first attack up this way, and they're defeated initially, and then they come back and have a, a, a second victory at a place called Horma, and that's spelled H-O-R-M-A. And this is just kind of a um, interesting word here because of its of its role in everything that takes place in Joshua. They have their initial attack coming up from the south, and they defeat the first battle with the Canaanites at Hormah. Now, Hormah has its root. Remember, Hebrew is not vocalized. That means it doesn't have vowels. And so it just has consonants. And the root is H-R-M, which looks like this in the Hebrew. Hebrew is always written from right to left. Terem. H. It's really a C-H. It's a very guttural H. Terem. And it means to put something under the ban, which means to, that it is dedicated to God for some purpose. It's, it's a group that has been dedicated. And so this word is used throughout Joshua and Judges to indicate that the Canaanites are all under harem. That is, it is, they are under the ban. They are dedicated for a specific purpose, and that is 
annihilation and slaughter. And this word is used over and over again. And it comes across into English and into modern Arabic as harem. That should be harem, spelled like that. Harem is the same root. You take a group of wives that belong to to the potentate, and that's his harem. These women are segregated and isolated from the rest of society. And it has its root back in this very ancient word for that is the root for Horma, which is the place where they were where they were defeated. So that gives you a little word history on something. That's where the word harem comes from. And so next time you get involved in Scrabble or something like that, maybe you can pull that out and impress everybody. So they come up from the um, then they, they have this initial defeat, then they head over this way, this would be to the west. They skirt the southern end of the Dead Sea, and this area here that's shaded in lavender to the south, uh, uh, southeast of the Dead Sea, excuse me, southeast, is Moab. And they come up along the, the King's Highway here. There's a major uh, caravan route here called the King's Highway, and they come up to enter the land right about here, and there are two battles. This area here that is east of the Jordan that we call the Trans-Jordan, across the Jordan, this is the area. They have two major battles in this Trans-Jordanian area. First of all, they defeat the Ammonites. This region here is called Ammon, but it is predominantly dominated by the ethnic group, the Amorites. So when you look at that in the Scriptures, most of the time they're called the Amorites, but it is in the land of Ammon, so don't get too confused over that. Uh, Moses is leading them. They have their first battle against the Ammonites at Jahaz, which is located right about here in this area. And then they head out to Edrei, Edrei which is located out in this area, up to the, sort of the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And there they defeat Og, the king of Bashan. So that seizes control of the Transjordanian area, which will be the home, tribal, for the home for Gad. You can see the purple area here is Gad, uh, Reuben, and some of Manasseh uh, crosses the Jordan into this Transjordanian area. Then they, they come to the, the Jordan, and it's at Mount uh, Nebo that Moses goes up to the top of Mount Nebo, and there he dies, and his, he goes to the Lord, and the angels uh, Satan fights over his body, and the people are organized under Joshua, and they head across to Jericho, where they have their first major battle here. Then they head up just to the northwest of Jericho to the city of Ai, Ai and, um, and this is the next major populated area. This is in Joshua chapter 7, and then Joshua chapter 8 tells of their battle with the Gibeonites, or the treaty with the Gibeonites who who dress up to deceive the uh, Jews that they came a long way and they're not really living in the land and they deceive the Jews into entering into a treaty with them so they wouldn't annihilate them. After they have their campaign in the central hill country, the next section of of, uh, Joshua deals with the southern campaign. It's sort of a divide and conquer strategy that Joshua has. He goes into the central hill country, takes control of that by... uh, taking control of the major population centers. And then he goes south and he goes north. When he goes south, he has to go against the southern confederacy, the king of Jebus, which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is located on this map right about here. Goes into Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Eglon, the king of Lachish, the king of Yarmouth. And they come out. This is how God deceives them. It looks as an impossible task to defeat the enemies because they built these fortified cities. For example, at, uh, at, Gezer, at Gezer, which is located also down here in this area, one of the towns in this particular area, at Gezer, the archaeologists have discovered that the walls from this period were 47 to 51 feet uh, wide. That's as wide as a four-lane highway. And they were 60 feet high. So it's no wonder that when the 12 spies went into the land initially and they saw these cities with these fortifications and these high, broad walls surrounding them, came back and said, it's impossible. There's no way that we can do it. We don't have any siege engines. 
You know, we don't have a cadre of military officers that have been to, to West Point. Uh, we don't have any uh, military engineers. We don't know how to take this out. So it looked impossible to them. And, of course, ten of the spies says it's impossible. We can't do it. And the other two said it doesn't matter with God. Nothing is impossible. So God can give us the victory. And God indeed did. He blinded the minds of the of the inhabitants of these walled cities, and they came out from behind their walls thinking that because they had this confederacy, this alliance, that their army was powerful enough and large enough to, to defeat Joshua, and Joshua defeated them on the plains of, of uh, Israel between Ajalon and Gibeon. So here's a map of the strategy. This, you, you, each of these maps is oriented a little differently. Here's the Dead Sea up at the upper right-hand corner. And here's Jericho, and this red line is the Hebrews coming down through Gibeon, down this way, doing battle at uh, Lachish, down in the lower right-hand corner, then up to Hebron, and then they move, and it's in this area right here uh, that they have the uh, final battle where they defeat the uh, Canaanite armies. Then there is a northern campaign where they go up uh, north to uh, Hazor. I don't have a map of that. They go up north to, to uh, Hazor and they defeat north of the Sea of Galilee and there they defeat the Canaanites. And the point is that they take control by seizing the major areas of the land. Now the spiritual application that flows from this is found in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7 through the end of chapter 4. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews and just read a couple of those verses. What's important here is when you look at Old Testament events, they happened as they are portrayed in the Scripture. I want to make sure we understand that. And when we start getting into some areas of typology and analogy, sometimes people think, well, that's like allegory. It really didn't happen that way. They just wrote it that way so they could make spiritual application. No, that's false. The reason they can make the spiritual application is because this is it's viewed as accurate history. This is exactly what happened. And on the basis of that, we can make application. And the Scripture, the Scripture itself, notice this, the Scripture itself tells us how to properly interpret these Old Testament events. We're not left to just read, read the events and then just get inside our own intuition and based on our own experience somehow come up with what we think the application should be. The Scripture itself tells us how to apply these particular events. Verse 7 of Hebrews 3, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, and uh, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the days of trial in the wilderness. So there's a warning to the church today based upon the actions of the Jews in the wilderness and their rejection of God's provision. Verse 9, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years, the manna, the clothes that didn't wear out, all the various miracles... It was also during that time as they came around the southern edge of the Red Sea. That's where they had the episode where the vipers appeared. The vipers came out and they were biting all of the Jews and they had to erect a bronze serpent and that by looking at it they would be healed. And that, of course, is a picture of Jesus Christ. So they saw all of these miracles and yet still continued to reject God. Therefore I was angry, verse 10, Therefore I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The promised land is pictured as the rest for Israel. That there, Not that they would not have struggled, but that that was the promise of God and in the promised land, that is where they would have all of the, the place of blessing from God. Just as in the Christian life, when we're in fellowship, that doesn't mean, and we're faith resting, that doesn't mean it's free from adversity, free from trial, free from struggle but that that is the place where we see God give us victory over these things and we can have the peace of God, we can have the peace that surpasses all comprehension, we can share the happiness of God, we can have true inner happiness that goes above and beyond any circumstances. So the warning to these Hebrews to the, uh, in verse 12 is, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. So the writer of Hebrews continues to build on this down, down through chapter 4 and you can take some time to go home and read through that to see how he applies these events to the spiritual life today. The principle that we learn from this 
The principle that we learn from this is that the Bible always tells us how to interpret itself. How to interpret itself. Now we come then to see the fact that in Joshua, in the book of Joshua, we see this tremendous victory that God gives them over all the Canaanites. But something happens. They don't maintain the victory. They don't maintain the initiative. They become somewhat uh, complacent and begin to compromise with God's command. And as we saw last time in Judges, they just get to the point where they completely give up and they lose control of many portions of the land. I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4 verse 1 and we will see the nadir of Israel's history at this time. It takes place at the battle of Aphek. Now this is not one of those battles you're familiar with. It's it's uh, not Valley Forge, it's not Gettysburg, it's not even the Alamo, but it's every bit as significant. It's perhaps one of the most significant battles in all of history, if not all of, in, 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 but at least it is the most significant battle in Israel's history. It's not a very long chapter, and I just want to read through the through the chapter to give you a, and make some comments to give you an idea of what happens at this time. Now, the events of Exodus took place in 1446. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. Put a timeline up here for you. 1446, you have the Exodus. Forty years in the wilderness means that in 1406 they go into the land. We know from comparing various other scriptures that the conquest, the three campaigns of Joshua to seize control of the land, takes seven years. By the time Joshua and Caleb die, it's approximately 1350 B.C. We know then that Saul comes to power as king about 1050. So there's about 300 years covering the period of the judges. And these events take place, the Battle of Aphek takes place at approximately uh, 1100 B.C. It might be 1090, but just, just to give you a rough idea of when we're talking about, Samuel is a judge. During the time of the judges, at the end, the last three the, the last two judges mentioned in the book of Judges are Jephthah, who fights the Ammonites and the Amorites in the, in the east. And at the same time as Jephthah... See, the problem is that the way we read the history of Judges, it looks like it's one judge following another. But they operate at different areas in the land. Some are in the north, some are in the south, some are in the east, some are are in the west, and so they overlap a lot. And at the same time, Jephthah is the judge in the east dealing with the Ammonite threat. God is raising up Samson in the, in the west to deal with the uh, Philistine threat. By the time Samson dies, Samuel has already been born, and Eli is the high priest, and Eli is also functioning as a judge. So after Samson dies, he's replaced by Eli. Samuel is just a young boy, maybe five or six years old by the time uh, Samson dies, and Eli is operating as the high priest. And at the time of the battle of Aphek, Eli is 98 years old. Samson is, I mean, Samuel is somewhere between the ages of uh, probably 12 and 15, just a, just a young boy. Israel has been completely disobedient to God. They have not uh, at all turned back to God after the oppression of the Philistines. They have not sought deliverance. They have not confessed their sins and turned back to God, so God is going to judge them. That's the context of chapter 4 in 1 Samuel. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. So this is phase one of the battle. Now this is a map for another purpose, but here is the Dead Sea here. And up in the north, the Sea of Galilee, just to orient you. Here's Jerusalem here. This is the hill country. 
And the battle of Aphek takes place out here to the west of Jerusalem. And it is going to open the door. Once they are defeated in this battle, it's the last stand and, and the Philistines are just going to drive their armies all the way into the heart of the land. But it starts off at phase one with this first battle and 4,000 Hebrews are killed on the battlefield. Now they're shocked and dismayed because they have been defeated. But look at how they respond to this problem. Unfortunately, this is how too many Christians respond. First they go out there and they try to have, have some kind of a victory over a problem in their life, deal with the problem on their own terms. That falls apart. So they come back and they use God like he's their magic wand, he's a lucky rabbit's foot, or some sort of other talisman. Verse 3, When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. See, it's just a lucky charm here. Uh, There's no sense of spiritual reality here, no obedience to God, no submission to God. If we have the ark, we'll win. Sort of like what you saw in the movie, The Ark of the Covenant. 1 Samuel 4.4 So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Now the, the two sons of Eli are his successors in the priestly line, so I want you to catch what's happening here. You have the high priest Eli and his two sons. When Eli dies, it is these incorrigible... I mean, these guys are like bandits. Earlier in the in, in the text, and in, in, I think it's in chapter 3, they're, um, they're sort of shaking down everybody who comes to the temple to worship. Every time they come to the tabernacle to, um, to uh, offer a sacrifice, they, they shake them down for all their money. They're, they're in it for what, what they're going to get out of it. So they're just absolutely incorrigible and depraved. But they are the next line, next in line for the high priesthood. They are the designated successors. So they're pulling out all the stops. They're not only going to bring the ark out, they're going to bring uh, Hophni and Phinehas out with the ark of the covenant and that will give them victory. Verse 5, And it happened as the ark of the covenant of Yahweh came into the camp that all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. Now, word has gone on, and everyone in the area knows about the ark of the Lord. And the Philistines, verse 7, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hands of these mighty people? They figure it's over with. The game is lost at this point. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. See, their gods can't win victory, so they really, even though they've heard all these stories at at, at the very core of their being, they really don't believe that God can do it. So they think, well, if we're strong enough and tough enough, we can still defeat the Israelites, even if if they, they do have this magic box out in front of them. So the Philistines fought and looked. Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent and the slaughter was intense. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. 30,000 casualties in this battle. I don't know that that means necessarily that they all died, but they had 4,000 who died earlier. They probably lost at least 12,000 dead, maybe more. So this is a devastating defeat for Israel. Let's put this in context. This is as devastating a defeat for Israel as the dropping of the atomic bombs were on Japan at the end of World War II and the defeat of the Japanese. This is crushing. Psychologically as a nation, this wipes them out. They, they think God has left them. They, they believe totally that the God in the ark who took them through the Red Sea, who took them through the Jordan, who gave them victories over Jericho, over Ai, all of these has now left them. God is God has left them. There is no more hope. They are absolutely devastated and they go into one of the darkest periods of Israel's history between Aphek and, the, and really the time of, of David. They are in the darkest period in all of Israel's history with, with only a couple of exceptions. So verse 11, the ark of God. This is the throne of God. God is enthroned upon the cherubim. This is the throne of the king of the nation now. The throne is taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas die. It's the end of the priesthood. 
At this point, there's no successor. It's the end of everything. That's how they're looking at this. This is it. God's left us. God's been taken. He's been captured. The priesthood is, is dead. There is no more hope. Verse 12. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching. Because Now that's, a, that's really a, 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 an idiom because we'll see Eli's blind. Because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. Verse 14. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And Eli said, How did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. And it came about when he mentioned the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and, and fat. I'll just translate that the way it ought to be. He was old and fat. Thus he judged Israel for forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. This is the hope of the nation. And, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down. It, it, it's so crushing, so devastating, it induces labor. She immediately goes into labor and gives birth. Verse 20, And about the time, and about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, she's going to die in childbirth, do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. In other words, there is hope. There's a male child. The, the priestly line will go forward. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichavod. Ichavod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Ichavod is a compound word. The I is a negative prefix. In, it would be a negative prefix in English. Kavod is the word for glory. His word means no glory. His name means no glory. There's no more glory in Israel. It's, it's lost. The cause is lost. So every time you would pronounce this kid's name, you would be reminded of the defeat of Asaph. So the one who's left in the priest, high priestly line now, the, the grandson of Eli, every time they speak of him, they are reminded that the glory has departed from Israel and the ark of God was taken. Now first thing, this shows several things. First of all, this shows that the theocracy ends with this battle. After this, there's a, there's a time of, of, of collapse for about probably about 20, anywhere from 20 to 40 years, depending on how you work out the chronology, and we're not sure about a number of things there. But God is going to come along and institute the monarchy. The people really, what we're going to see is the people are going to want a king for all the wrong reasons, and so God gives them Saul. God always intended to give him a king. You go back and you read Deuteronomy, there are all sorts of regulations and laws pertaining to the function of a king. God always intended to give them that king. The king was David. But the people wanted to jump the gun. They were impatient. They wanted a king for all the wrong reasons. They wanted to be like every other nation. And so God gave them Saul so that they would develop a little appreciation and capacity for when David would come along. But this battle shows that the theocracy has ended. The sign of, of God's reign is the ark, the tabernacle, and the priesthood. And the ark is gone. The king is in exile. His throne is gone. The priesthood is destroyed. After the battle of Aphek, the, the Philistines pursue their, their victory and the initiative and they come to Shiloh and they destroy the tabernacle. They wipe out everything. There is nothing left. The priesthood is almost destroyed. The only one left is Echavod. And he's a baby incapable of fulfilling the role. So how are they going to have a spiritual life as a nation? There's no priesthood. This is devastating. It is a major turning point of history and it's the end of God's direct rule. Now, I think that this is almost a dispensational shift. You won't find a single dispensationalist out there who's going to make a distinction here. But everybody defines a dispensation basically as a, a, an, an administrative period in God's working out of human history. The dispensations are periods of time in the outworking of God's administrative control of human history. And every time God changes the way he administers human history, we mark that as a dispensational shift. 
Well, I would say this is a major shift from God's direct rule of the people to an indirect rule through a human king. So I think that we could at least make this a sub-dispensation. This is a major event that is often overlooked in the history of Israel. The second observation is to ask the question, why is it necessary that they're defeated? From a, first of all, from a natural viewpoint, the Philistines are numerically, militarily, and technologically superior. They had entered the Iron Age, as I've mentioned several times, and they would not allow the Jews, the Hebrews, to have blacksmiths. So that means that the Jews, they prevented the Jews from having access to the latest technology in order to protect themselves. That's always the way of the tyrant, is to keep the citizen from being able to own the latest technology, whether that's an Uzi or whatever it might be, in order to protect themselves. The issue is not sportsmanship. The issue is personal protection of the home against the possibility of an encroaching federal power. Now, this is what was taking place there. And so the Philistines were superior and they wiped out Israel. And then the real issue, though, is not their uh, technological inferiority. It's that they are spiritually in rebellion. They have lost the capacity to enjoy their freedom and to live responsibly. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I made a comment in relation to, to gun control and all the things that are going on with guns. And I've I've reflected on that quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. And I talked about how when I was young, and a friend of mine and I were talking about this the other day, he he too grew up in the South, I think, over in Mississippi. And uh, when we were kids, in high school, even college, it was not uncommon to find somebody driving a pickup truck in Houston. I'm I'm talking about a city the size of a couple of million people at that time. That, that, uh, In fact, we were joking, wouldn't be a bit surprised if when you went down to... uh, uh, Mossy Ford or somewhere, and you wanted to order a pickup truck if they didn't have an accessory of a gun rack with a 30-30 on it. It it was just common because you had a lot of ranchers and farmers who lived just on the outskirts of Houston. They'd be coming in, and they always had a a rifle or shotgun with them when they were out outside uh, in case of snakes or or, uh, coyotes or whatever, any kind of varmint they needed to take care of. And you'd go to school. I remember going to high school. We'd see kids at high school with the pickup trucks, and they'd have a 30-30 or shotgun on it, and nobody made an issue out of it. I'm sure that was not uncommon up here, being a rural area. What's made the difference? Not the guns. The people. See, what happened is 30 years ago, we still had enough residual effect from a Christian culture to where people had a sense of right and wrong and they had a level of establishment-related integrity so that even though they had guns at school, they didn't use them in a wrong or illegitimate manner. But what's happened is not that there are more guns, it's that we have gotten so far removed from any kind of Christian value system in our nation, even as establishment principles, that people no longer have the internal character to be able to handle it. And what's going to happen is we're going to see more and more encroachments in this arena and more and more events where kids are taking guns to school and shooting other kids, and each time that happens, there's going to be more and more pressure to take guns away from people because people no longer have the inner core character necessary to handle responsibility and freedom. And the only thing that can turn it around is an internal spiritual renovation. And that's what eventually happens in Israel. And we will see that as we get into our study on First Samuel. Now, they're defeated from a natural viewpoint because they are inferior to the Philistines, but spiritually, that's the real issue. This is the outworking of the curses uh, section of the Mosaic Law Code. And the principle that we see here is that as goes the believer, so goes the nation. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. The decisions that we make affect the nation. The decisions that we make affect the nation. They affect more than us. Our decisions to be here at Bible class week in, week out, twice on Sunday, once on Wednesday night, listening to tapes, growing spiritually, applying doctrine, those are the decisions that will change the nation. Without that, nothing else. It's not, it's not a direct correlation. It's not that as a church or as Christians we go out and we get into some kind of civil action and we march on Washington and we organize politically. That's not... 
two is that when Christians are growing and maturing, God brings in these secondary effects. God blesses the nation by association, and so these other things are taken care of, and there is the effect of the nation, as, of the believer, as salt on the nation. Now, Psalm 78 goes back and rehearses these particular events and the tragedy that took place at the nation at this time. In verse 60 we read, So that he abandoned the dwelling place, that is God, he abandoned the dwelling place of Shiloh, the tent, tent which he had pitched among men. And he gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. He also delivered his people to the sword and was filled with wrath at his inheritance. Fire devoured his young men and his virgins had no wedding songs. His priests fell by the sword and his widows his widows could not weep. This is a devastating, devastating event in the life of Israel. Now, the, another principle that we should get from all this is that your use of your volition might be a matter of privacy, but its consequences affect everyone around you, either cursing by association or blessing by association. It may not be anybody else's business what kind of sins you want to engage in and how licentious you might want to be at one point or another. But the consequences affect whether they're known or unknown, they are known to God, and those consequences will affect everybody around you and the entire nation. So no man is an island. No man is an island. Now, we have seen that Israel spiritually trusted God when they went into the land under Joshua. Then by the time 300 years goes by, they are in absolute defeat. The theocracy is ended. The priesthood collapses. The tabernacle is in ruins. What is it that took place during this time? And that takes us back to the book of Judges. And we saw last time that the main idea in Judges was that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They went into spiritual, cultural, moral relativism. The ultimate authority was no longer the Word of God. The, or the, the ultimate authority was whatever anybody wanted to do. It was pure relativism, same thing that dominates today. They were unable, the Jews of the uh, conquest generation, those spiritually matured Jews who conquered the land, were unable to pass on their faith to the subsequent generation. It was a failure of their parenting. The Scripture uh, emphasizes that, that they were just unable to pass it on so that the next generation, Judges 2.10 says, describes the next generation as the generation who did not know Yahweh. Israel has a history of, of being unable to pass on. They, they have these generations here and there in history that are positive to the Word and apply the Word, but they seem completely unable to pass it on. That's why Solomon writes the Proverbs, and there's so much emphasis in the Proverbs on what the parent's responsibility is to teaching and training up the children because they continuously fail to do that. You see that sometimes in our culture where people say, well, I just can't understand this kind of thinking. You see somebody who's a, um, let's just say a Methodist and a, and a and Jewish or Methodist and Catholic or whatever. Well, we're, gonna, we're, we're just going to let our kid grow up and, and make their own decision when they grow up. Well, they won't make any decision when they grow up. You have to teach a child because he, he won't just learn it. And if you grow up in that kind of a household, all he's going to learn is confusion, that nothing matters, and that religion is meaningless. That's what he's going to learn. You have to make a stand. And it's the parent's responsibility to teach doctrine to the kids over and over and over again. And it is primarily the responsibility of the father to see that that information is passed on. And just as you have to hear it at church, in Bible class, continuously, repetition, over and over again, you have to do that in the home. Well, even Moses' family failed. We're told in Judges 18.30 that Jonathan, the son of Manasseh, but it's really a, a, there's been a corruption of the Hebrew text there. In Hebrew, the only difference between Manasseh, remember there's no vowels, M-N-S and M-S, you drop out the N, you go from Manasseh to Moses, there's a textual problem there. And in Judges 18.30, it says that that Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, uh, introduced a, an idolatrous cult into the tribe of Dan. So you just see this continuous uh, collapse of the nation. 
throughout the period of the judges. And it's exemplified within just a, a short time at the um, uh, when Deborah and Barak are judging. For example, here in um, Judges 5.14, you see the pacifism that had infected the nation. They no longer had a heart for battle. They no longer had a heart for freedom. We read that from Ephraim, those whose root in Amalek came down. Following you, Benjamin, with your peoples from from Machir, commanders came down. And, and from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office. In other words, as he and Barak were going into battle, there were some tribes that sent troops in order to fight off the enemy. Verse 15, And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels among the divisions of Reuben. There was great resolves of heart. So these were the tribes that, that sent aid, that sent troops. But there were others who were complacent. They had lost their, their understanding of freedom and their willingness to fight for freedom. And they had lost the principle that freedom is always preserved through military victory. Judges 5.16, Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? That's the question that Deborah is asking. Why did you stay at home with your sheep instead of coming to battle? Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. They, they sat back and they said, Oh, well, let's think about this a while. You know, maybe they, That's further south. We're not really involved. Uh, they're not really knocking on our door yet. They're not. So why should we go to their aid and, and send our young men down there to die for them? Judges 5.17 Gilead remained across the Jordan. And why did Dan stay in his ship? Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landing. Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even to death and Naphtali also on the high places of the field. It was Zebulun from the tribe of Zebulun and Naphtali that the majority of the troops came and they were willing to um, have the, uh, give the ultimate sacrifice in order to preserve the freedom of the nation. So we come to the changes now in society. There are various changes as a result of the kingship that is going to take place. First of all, they're going to have a visible, tangible leader now. There will be a dynastic succession. This is not something that they have had in the past. Under the judges, they had no idea who would come up next. God would just raise up a deliverer. So with the kingship, there would be a change and they would have a new king. Second, there would be a centralization of power. Now there would be one man who could impose his will on the people. He would have an army. He would be able to impose taxes, even extreme taxes upon the people in order to do whatever he wanted to do. And God warned the nation that because they wanted a king, this is what they would have to, have to put up with. Third, they would, there would be the development of a privileged class within the society. One thing that's interesting, I've never had the time to really study it out completely, are the economic implications of the Mosaic Code. For example, in the Mosaic Code, every family, every clan, is given their inheritance, their allotment of land. But there's the recognition that somebody may make a bad decision here or there and get themselves into debt and have to sell off their land, their inheritance that God had given them, in order to pay their bills. But every 50th year, they would have a jubilee year. Every, seven year was, every seventh year was a sabbatical year. Seven times seven is 49. So the 49th year was a sabbatical year. The 50th year was a year of jubilee. And on the 50th year, excuse me, in the 50th year, all land, all inheritance land that was sold in the previous 50 years reverted back to its original owner. All debts were forgiven, wiped clean. Every, they never, Israel never applied the law in these areas. And it's always uh, interested me is what impact that would have economically and socially on the culture. For one thing, every 50 years, everything went back to the same starting point. So you wouldn't have groups or small groups of people amassing tremendous amounts of wealth in that culture because wealth was related to land. And every 50 years, the land went back to its original owner. So even if, if, if it was year 47 and you needed to get uh, some money to pay off your debts, you couldn't get as much as you could in year one. And that provision is, is right there in the uh, Levitical law that you could sell it, but it had to be prorated out on the basis of how many years it was until the year of Jubilee. Now you're going to have a king 
And with that king, you're going to have the development of a royalty and an aristocracy that would have to be supported by the taxes of the people, the development of a feudal system. So you have a complete transformation of Jewish society as a result of this king coming. Now let's look at the initiation of the kingship in 1 Samuel chapter 9. This is our picture of the king. The people have rebelled against God. They don't want God as king. They want to have a physical king just like all the other nations. And so Samuel goes to the Lord and he says, tells the Lord about this and the Lord says, well, I will, I will appoint a man. This is our first picture of the king, first king of Israel. Well, he's not really the first king, but he's the first king that's recognized. Um, Gideon's son was crowned king by the men of Shechem. That's really the first king. If you ever want to trap somebody in a Bible trivia question, ask them who the first king of Israel was. Everybody will tell you it was Saul. But if you go back to Judges 9, buried in the text that nobody ever reads, you discover that Abimelech, the son of, the son of Gideon, was crowned king of Israel by the men of Shechem. It didn't last very long. It didn't go very far. And he didn't have universal recognition. But he was the first one crowned king. But this is the first true king of Israel, Saul, the first in the United Kingdom. Now, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeron. He gives his background in verse 1. And he had a son, verse 2. His son was named Saul, Shaul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome man than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. So he has a majestic presence. He has an erect bearing. He has a regal bearing. He looks like a man who should be king. Of course, the first, first picture of him, to put, him, put it in, in, in our vernacular, is he, and, and using the King James terminology, is he's lost his asses. Now, that somehow is, is a little bit foreshadowing of Saul's problem. One might say he can't find his donkeys with both hands. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So he's out looking for the donkeys, and he can't find them anywhere. And he eventually finds, finds them through the help of, of Samuel, who sends him to a prophet, and it's in this period that it's demonstrated that Saul is the one who is going to be designated king. But our picture is of the, the, the last thing he wanted, or that he wants, is to be king. And God chooses him to be king, and there is a vast difference between Saul and David. Remember at this time that Saul is chosen, the nation is spiritually bankrupt, they're economically, militarily bankrupt, the ark is gone. Uh, the ark, which was at Ashdod, was taken by the Philistines, taken down to Ashdod, where it was put in the Temple of Dagon. The Temple of Dagon, they had the huge statue of Dagon, and every morning they would come down, and the statue, the idol of Dagon, was down on its face, bowing in obedience and doing homage to the Ark of the Covenant. So they, they kind of scratched their heads over that and decided to move it. They moved it to another town, and then everybody got a bad case of hemorrhoids. So they, they needed to move it to another. The, the, the text, I talked to Samuel several years ago. First and second Samuel are one book in the Hebrew, just Samuel. I talked through, through Samuel several years ago, and the language in the Hebrew is extremely earthy. Most American Christians can't handle the kind of language that the writer of Hebrews uses. I mean, it's the kind of language that I think people who are, grow up on a farm would be familiar with and comfortable with, but the average middle class evangelical who's who's never seen an animal born on the farm, uh, just can't handle it. It's very earthy, descriptive uh, language, almost coarse in its, uh, in its approach. And there's a lot of humor and play on words, and, and the whole episode with the hemorrhoids is quite humorous, but it just goes, just slides right past the English reader. So the ark is taken. Finally, the Philistines say, we can't put up with this anymore. Let's get rid of the ark, but just in case... It's not what we think it is. We're going to set up a little test. So they take a couple of milk cows. These are, these are cows that have just given birth. They have their calves, and calves are still, uh, still milking. So the calves don't want to leave the mother, and the mother doesn't want to leave the calf. And they'll say, well, we'll take these two milk cows who've never been hitched to a wagon, and we'll hitch them up to a wagon, and we'll put the Ark of the Covenant on the wagon. Now, you would expect under normal conditions for one cow to go one way and the other cow to go the other way, and both of them to want to head back their calves as quick as possible. And they lock the calves up in the barn, but the two milk, milk cows just make a beeline for Israel, taking the ark back to Israel. And when the ark comes back to Israel, 
What does Saul do? Saul ignores it. He ignores it. He doesn't care. See, Saul is totally self-absorbed when it comes to his, his reign. Saul is not concerned for God. He is not concerned for the priorities of God. And so he is, um, he just ignores the ark. Now, Saul was a believer. I think it's clear, uh, because the Holy Spirit comes on him. He's not indwelt like in the New Testament, but the Holy Spirit comes on him. So Saul is a believer, number one. And number two, when, when Samuel comes back from the dead at that, that episode with the witch of Endor, when, when Saul goes to the witch of Endor and he finally caves in and says, says, I'm going to go to a, to a necromancer to call up the dead and have a seance because I've got to have some insight here. And Samuel's dead. I've got to get, get in touch with Samuel to find out what to do. Samuel appears. God allows this one time in history for the dead to come back. And Samuel comes and he says, Tomorrow I will see you, Saul, with me. Well, that indicates if Saul's going to be with Samuel, then Saul was a believer. And I'm amazed at how many people teach that Saul wasn't a believer because he was so carnal. Just because you're carnal doesn't mean you're not a believer, folks. Just because you, you can't do anything right spiritually and you're negative your whole life doesn't mean you're not a believer. But I think it's important to introduce some of the contrast between Saul and David. Sometimes we, we glorify David too much. Think about this, just in terms of normal human approach. Saul is removed from the throne. Finally, the last straw is that he goes into battle with the Amalekites. The Amalekites are part of the Canaanite horde that's under the ban that's to be annihilated. And God says, kill every man, woman, and child and destroy all their animals. Same command that they should have been following all along with regard to the Canaanites. So Saul, just like it has a such a modern ring to it in terms of modern liberalism. Saul goes into battle with the Amalekites and he defeats them, but he doesn't annihilate them. You just see Saul scratching his head and say, wait, if I kill Agag, like God said, then, then Gagag won't get another chance to be saved. If I kill him, I, I, maybe if we leave him alive, he'll get a chance to be saved. So and he might make something. Maybe he'll repent and make something of his life. And if we, if I destroy all of his goods and wipe out all of his cattle and his sheep, that didn't do anybody any good. We could gather them together and sell them and, and, and give that money to the poor or we could use the money to uh, somehow do something uh, spiritual and impress God. And, and so he rationalizes his disobedience. And Saul is rejected because he doesn't obey God. But the interesting thing is Saul is rejected because he doesn't kill somebody. And David is not rejected though he commits adultery and murder and conspiracy and cover-up. Now think about that. What makes the difference? You see, in America we get this idea that somehow our spiritual leaders have to almost walk on water. And yet if you examine the Scriptures, that's not true. Especially in Israel, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And, and you look at Jephthah and Gideon and all of the, these heroes. These guys were sinners. We still have sin natures and there's nothing. There is not one thing that any of us is incapable of doing after salvation uh, apart from the grace of God. So Saul is removed because he doesn't kill someone. David is kept on the throne despite his adultery and murder. Why? Because Saul is indifferent to God. It's, it's seen in his whole approach to the ark. He doesn't care. He doesn't bring it to Jerusalem. He, he doesn't try to rebuild the tabernacle. He just leaves it out in the woods for the dew to fall on it, and he really doesn't care. But David has a heart for God. At the very core of David's person, no matter how much he might mess up, no matter how badly he sins, at the very core of David's nature, he wants to do what God wants him to do. He wants God's priorities for his priorities. That's the difference. He's called a man after God's own heart, and that's exactly what that means. We see this contrast in Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all his affliction, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob. Surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it, that is, the, the Ark of the Covenant, in the field of Jaar. See, all this time, the ark is just left there sitting out in the field throughout Saul's reign. He just doesn't care. Saul is 
negative to God. David is positive. That's what makes the difference. It's not that one sinned less. In fact, I think if we look at Saul's life and we look at the, the sins that he committed, they would not stack up as being nearly as heinous as the sins that David committed. Now, David suffered for his sins. God brought divine discipline in David's life and he went through a miserable miserable time with all of his children, all the consequences of, uh, of his sin. But God did not remove him from the throne. God treated him in grace because David was positive, but Saul was negative. Well, that brings us to a very important subject, which is the Davidic covenant, which is what is the hallmark of David's reign. And we don't have time to get into that this morning, so we'll come back and look at that, start with the Davidic covenant next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You that we have this time to look at Your Word and to see how throughout history You have worked under the same principles of faith alone, of grace, of Your goodness. That there is judgment for sin, but there is also grace and that You have always provided the solution. And the solution today is the solution then is always the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In the Old Testament, they anticipated it. In the New Testament, we look back to it. The work of Christ completed our salvation. He paid the price in full so that salvation is based in nothing else but faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their destiny, that they would take this time right now to make that certain. All you need to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. It's not a matter of works or moral reformation or doing good or joining a church or any other human factor. It's simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, help us to understand the things that we have gone over this morning, see the spiritual principles and implications for our own lives that we may be challenged to learn from their example and not to treat you lightly, but to continue to trust you to solve every problem, every difficulty in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.